0: Good morning from the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. Gunfire and explosions have been heard here and in the second city of Kharkiv shortly after the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, authorised a special military operation.
1: Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine shocked the world. Whilst fighting is happening in Europe, repercussions have been felt around the globe that
0: grain shortages as a result of the war will lead to a disastrous situation worldwide.
2: The conflict in Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia have led to another surge in the cost of oil and gas.
0: Urgently, we have to address the energy crisis. The cost of living in the UK is rising, and it's changing people's lives.
1: Disruption to trade and supply chains means a rapidly worsening outlook for international development, making it harder to reach those that need support the most. Meanwhile, the UK's COVID recovery and the growing fiscal black hole in the public finances have forced Britain to make tough decisions about where that money goes, throwing into question its position as a world leader when it comes to international development and with it the reputation of global Britain.
0: Sticking rigidly to spending 0.7% of our national income on overseas aid is difficult to justify to the British people
2: the details and impact of the cuts to the foreign aid budget are only now beginning to emerge.
0: Newsnight has learned that the government is funding the entire cost of housing Ukrainian refugees from the existing overseas aid budget.
1: On this special episode from The Spectator, we have spoken to politicians and experts who are well-versed in the international development debate. I'm Kate Andrews, The Spectator's economics editor, and this episode is kindly sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I spoke to Rory Stewart, former Secretary of State for International Development and currently CEO of NGO GiveDirectly, a company which allows donors to send unconditional direct cash transfers to some of the poorest households in the world. I started by asking him what convinced him of the value of this method.
3: International development has failed in its promise over the last 70 years. International development was launched on the idea that it would end extreme poverty, And there are more people living in extreme poverty in Africa today than there were 40 years ago. And most of these traditional approaches that you talk about, giving money to governments or foreign NGOs turning up and deciding what's best for communities, haven't worked. And one of the reasons they haven't worked is that generally local communities have a much better sense of their priorities and needs and are able to address them much more efficiently than outsiders can do. So... Cash is a sort of it's a sort of miracle hiding in plain sight. We have spent decades with old systems, which involve turning up and training people and telling them how they should spend their money. But what we've discovered with over 300 academic papers is that if you actually give the money directly to the very poorest, they can address their needs much more effectively and efficiently.
1: I believe that GiveDirectly has already managed to send, on average, roughly $600 to over 1.3 million households worldwide living in poverty. As somebody who's been on the ground, who's been at the forefront of this project, what benefits are you seeing? What is the direct consequence of this? Well,
3: the, the benefits are extraordinary. For, for as little as $600, you can see a genuine transformation in somebody's life. And it depends on who they are and where their house is and what their priorities are, because that's the genius of cash. It's not a one size fits all. Everybody adjusts to their process. So some people will open a small business or expand a small business. Many people will get solar panels. Many people will put a metal roof on their house and take rainwater from the roof. People will connect to electricity. They'll sign up for government health insurance. They'll get their children back into school. They'll dig a latrine, they'll buy a cow so they have milk, and you see almost immediately huge improvements on nutrition, on youth employment, on people's savings and incomes. And strangely, more improvements on nutrition than you would get from a traditional nutrition program, because often what's holding people back is not their knowledge about what they should be eating or drinking It's simply having the money to access the food or the milk.
1: Mm, That's fascinating. Let me ask you, what experiences did you take into your CEO role from your time as International Development Secretary in the UK? I think
3: obviously many experiences, but, but one of them is a sense of realism about the limits of big government projects, about how difficult it is to try to decide from London what the best way to spend money might be in a remote community in Zambia and how much money, unfortunately, European, American governments and other donors can waste by putting these very elaborate mechanisms in place. They put mechanisms in place because they're trying to look after public money and stop fraud, but they're very, very expensive mechanisms, which often mean that the amount of money that actually lands on the ground, the amount of money that actually ends up in the pocket of the poor person is much, much less than what you sent in the first place.
1: Mm. In retrospect, what do you think the successes are of the UK's international development program so far? And what do you think are the main pitfalls?
3: Well, I think one of the great successes is that the UK government was one of the real pioneers in understanding the importance of cash. At a time at which other international development agencies didn't want to do that, the UK government helped to set up the Kenya social safety net program, did an income support program in Bangladesh, did another program in Pakistan, which has been incredibly successful, and is now looking across Africa at the possibility of doing larger cash transfers to transform poverty. In the end, what made DFID and now FCDO so unique was its ability to focus on extreme poverty.
1: You have been a vocal critic of combining your old department into the foreign office, as well as that temporary reduction in the UK aid budget down to 0.5% during the COVID era. What are you so concerned as being lost by these decisions?
3: Well, the, the first thing is I don't believe it's temporary. Everybody keeps saying it's a temporary reduction during the COVID era. There's no sign whatsoever that the UK government is proposing to restore its international development spend to its legal commitment. There's a a law in Britain that we're supposed to be spending 0.7% of our GNI on international development. And that ties into a whole series of international promises we made from the world to try to do more to support the world's poorest people. And that's particularly important now because the world's poorest people are suffering incredibly badly, more extremely than people in Europe or the United States from the Russia-Ukraine war, from rises in energy prices, from inflation, from climate change. There are areas of Africa that now had drought for four years on in a row. So that, that's the first problem. We're simply not doing our part to help people. Um, the second problem is that we've lost a lot of expertise. Development is a profession quite different from diplomacy. Diplomats are there to negotiate and focus on politics and development professionals are there to think about very difficult questions about how you do economic development. And muddling those two things together doesn't help anybody.
1: What do you make of the argument that at a time where the British public are already in an economic bind, really feeling that crunch with their bills, their mortgages, are about to be asked to sacrifice more in order to get the public finances in order, that prioritizing international development and aid is actually a very difficult case to make during such grim economic times?
3: I suppose what I would say is that, of course, that's a serious point and it's something worth thinking about. The whole world is going into a recession. The whole world is getting into a very difficult economic situation. But the people who are suffering most, sadly, are going to be the very poorest in the world. And all the things that we're feeling in Britain are felt 200, 300 times worse amongst the extreme poor in Africa. If we don't find a way of providing support for those people over the next 20 years, the number of people in extreme poverty will increase dramatically. And the world will experience that, experience it through migration, experiencing it through security problems, experiencing it through a drag on economic growth, because you're removing hundreds of millions of potentially active people who could be working in the global economy. So International development is a long-term obligation. It's not something that we can just drop year on year, depending on whether our economy happens to be growing as fast as we want it to be growing in a particular year.
1: There are discussions in the UK about whether or not up to half of the international aid budget should go towards supporting refugees who are coming to the UK shores. That would more or less account to domestic spending, but arguably on those who are coming here who are not UK natives, many of whom are in desperate need of urgent support. What do you make of that argument?
3: Well, it's not international development. I mean, it it may be a, a morally good thing to do. There are many morally good things to do. Looking after people in our own country, whether they're born in Britain, or they've come from other countries, is a good thing to do. But if we start taking what is already a very reduced state budget, our aid budget is already two thirds of the size of what it was when I was running the department. And of that, a large amount has been put into Ukraine. And then we take another half away to look after people coming to the United Kingdom. The UK basically will not feature in the world anymore. Already, we're in a very embarrassing situation. Already, our African missions have almost no role to play because they don't have resources. We're losing international influence very, very quickly. Britain cannot pretend to be a permanent member of the Security Council or talk about global Britain if the truth is that we have no money to provide any assistance or support or do anything internationally.
1: Well, I I have a suspicion. I know how you're going to answer this last question, Rory, but let me put it to you anyway. At its very best, what would UK international development look like on the global scale?
3: So it should return to where we were only three years ago. We were the leading international development player in the world in terms of thought leadership. We had a very significant budget. We had some very talented staff. We were shaping the conversation in many of the countries in the world. We were defining the way that international development was done. There's no reason why Britain can't return to that. It's taken three years to destroy and damage that through some very bad short-term decision-making. But that's reversible. And I think if we got back to where we could be, I would see Britain leading the movement to focus on extreme poverty. And in particular, helping to lead the movement to make cash transfers to the extreme poor central to the way that we eliminate poverty.
1: The UK has reduced its foreign aid budget to 0.5% of gross national income as it deals with the impacts and fallout from the global pandemic, meaning that lots of projects all around the world have had their funding either cut or pulled altogether. As it looks like the reduction in the foreign aid budget is here to stay for some time, I sat down with David Davis MP, the former Brexit Secretary, and Dan Hannon, an advisor to the Board of Trade, to debate the cases for and against a reduced aid budget. I started by asking David to make the case for restoring the UK's aid commitment to 0.7%.
2: Firstly, to get the nuance right. I mean, remember, I voted against the increase to 0.7%, but I then, then was very annoyed when we went backwards. And the reason, in that context, and it's very narrow, is because I took the view that would lead to the deaths of children. Bluntly. Um, At the moment, we've got a drought, stroke, famine in, in the Horn of Africa, and the estimate is there will be hundreds of thousands of children dying. So you've got that sort of crude, immediate thing, but that's not really the central point of difference, I suspect, between Dan and myself. I mean, the issue. We're of all aid,
0: against children dying. Let's, let's just yeah, yeah, let's, no, exactly. let's accept that. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I, I didn't think you yeah. would
2: disagree with that. No, but to come down to the, 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 the argument over aid more generally, right? the most important thing in developing the world, generally, is trade, right, for most people. And indeed, the biggest, second no, second biggest event in modern history was in the 90s, massive reduction in tariffs led to a huge increase in trade. One and a half billion people basically came out of absolute poverty. Huge change. I
1: have to ask you, David, what was the first?
2: The Industrial Revolution, which started this whole process. But that's fine. You've got about eight billion people in the world. It's fine for sort of seven of the eight, right? But the Amartya Sen half of this argument is that that other billion at the bottom, the bottom billion as it's referred to by Paul Collier are unable to make use of this for a variety of reasons. The most obvious one being, you know, they live on, well, it's sometimes said a dollar a day, but less than $5 a day. What does that mean? That means, you, you know, you're, you're in a circumstance where you've probably got to walk a few miles to get your clean water, where your children die with high frequencies, so you have to have big families, so you have trouble keeping them. You haven't got any assets. Free trade is about the enhanced capitalism reinforcing success, reinvesting surpluses. If there are no surpluses, if you are literally on the breadline all the time, if your main aim is to keep your children alive, if you can't even afford a bicycle without saving for 10 years or more, then your ability to make benefit out of trade is non-existent. I remember once going to Sumatra, Uh, the Indonesian government had a rural population problem, giving out land to families so they could support themselves and giving them cassava seed. And I, working for a sugar company, a starch company, was going to see whether we could buy the starch off them. And we drove into the backlands of Sumatra, and when we couldn't get any further with our four-wheel drive Land Rover, we walked for an hour or two and came to some villages, and what we saw by each village was the Midden Heap. And the Midden Heap was a heap of rotting cassava, because they couldn't get it to market, you know? And so you have all sorts of practical problems right at the nitty-gritty level that you've got help. And it's, well, I'm only really talking about the bottom billion. But in that bottom billion, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, die every year unnecessarily. And the only way to deal with that is by aid. Now, aid, how we do it, it's a big argument.
1: Dan, David makes a strong case there for UK foreign aid and money topping up these much poorer countries and these much poorer people. What's the case against
0: well, so first of all, he's absolutely right. David is absolutely right that trade has been the magic wand. I think, you know, a lot of us still have this idea of Africa that was formed, you know, from aid appeals and and news stories about civil wars. The, the, the image that will often come into your mind when you think of Africa is kind of, you know, children with swollen bellies and flies crawling around their lips or, or pango-wielding teenage soldiers. Those prejudices do not survive first contact. Sub-Saharan Africa has averaged more than 6% growth this century. It's uh, it's an astonishingly fast developing region, largely for the reasons that David gave. Countries have stopped pursuing self-sufficiency and have joined global markets. Where are those bottom billion? Is it just that they live far away from roads or whatever? Well, actually... In most cases, the, the reason that they're in the bottom billion is because they have a terrible government. A lot of those bottom billion are found in the North Koreas, the Venezuelas, the DRCs, the Zimbabwes, And they are poor because of policies that are extractive and are not productive of, of wealth. And so the question that, that we face is, how do we best address that? We must make sure that, we, you know, we first do no harm. We don't want to exacerbate the problem. And exacerbating the problem can take the form of... It's like a version of the resources curse. You know, the, the, the founder of OPEC, uh, the Venezuelan energy minister, came out with it. He wrote a book called The Devil's Excrement, El Excremento del Diablo. And he explained how if you have an unearned resource, you vitiate and destroy democratic politics. Because everyone just... It becomes a scramble to get your hands mm-hmm. on that resource. Aid can be like that if badly done, especially if it's done by governments. And so I would say that with, with a particular exception of disaster relief, because it's very difficult to marshal enough resources quickly enough, uh, and where I think governments do have a role, in general, I would much rather see aid done by foundations, charities and individuals. And when I've seen the impact of it on the ground, it's almost always better done than when it's carried out by governments. Hmm.
1: David, Dan points to some of those pitfalls that I think you started talking about at the beginning of your remarks. This concern that when governments give money to other governments, the funds are not properly used. Has the UK government done enough to make sure that its aid budget doesn't fall into that trap?
2: Oh, probably not. I mean, the, one of the things that worried me most about the cut back... From 7.7 7 to 8. 0.5, was there were a large number of multinational programmes. Now, I'm not a fan of multinational programmes, and we were committed to them. So that they had to stay, and so all the direct elements, handed, not direct in terms of the government, direct, but handing out to NGOs typically and, 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 and charities and so on uh, who, who do on the ground, that was the bit that got hurt. And that's why I said it would lead to the deaths of children, you know. Uh, is that, that not
1: an issue, though, just to challenge that slightly? Yeah. Is that not yeah. an issue of the wrong things being cut rather than the reduction in the aid budget well, yeah, overall. And th- That's
2: also true. And, and, you, and there's been a, uh, the, been a scandal about <laughs> a lot of the aid money is now going to support Albanian illegal migrants, you know, because that's the way the Treasury and A lot rules. of it
0: goes on lobbying. I mean, what, one of the things that, that I just find extraordinary is mm-hmm. how many of the organisations that people give money to thinking that they are you know, that is going to go in medicine, school books, food supplies or whatever, then end up spending it on advocacy, spending large amounts on it. And I, I think there's a sort of fundamental dishonesty there. But, but I agree with that. But look, I mean, we can go around in circle
2: saying, you know, the, 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 the management of the age budget is poor. It is. Let's, let's take that as a given. It doesn't take it away from my primary concern, which is this issue that, When people are, as it were, flat on their bellies, economically speaking, one of the interesting things about this and the impact on productivity struck me when I looked at the simple issue of buying a bicycle. Now, most of us could probably buy a bicycle out of our week's earnings. The sort of people I'm talking about, they may never get one or they may have to save for 10 years. Or if they get microcredit, which is one of the things that's come out of some of the diverse aid activities – they can buy it and they can pay it off in three years because they're so much more productive. They get to the water in an hour and back. They get to the market in an hour, and things get so much better. It's that first lift off the ground, and you have to bear in mind that you know this sort of subsistence existence was a lot of most of mankind up until about 1800. Yes, you know, getting out of it was really difficult, but we managed it eventually because in
0: Britain, well, we particularly managed it, yeah, because, which is yeah, why we're now being dem- asked for that, reparations by everyone else I having know, I know
2: we're having our yeah. money demanded with yeah. menaces, but. The and my concern is, you know, trade is about reinforcing capitalism. It's about reinforcing the generation of surplus to make things better, to grow and grow and grow. Getting a start on that is really important. You're, I you're, you're,
0: you're you're spot on about the micro five yeah. But this idea that somehow Giving money away, especially when it's state money, is somehow moral, uh, more moral than a a company making a profit and giving people work. I get the appeal intuitively, but it's fundamentally wrong. And the politician who says, I want to give more aid again, people on some level, they react as though he's talking about his own money. So they think he's being generous. When you you hear the words generous or mean applied to politicians, it's as though it was their own resources. It's not, right? The easiest thing is to be generous with other people's money. A much tougher thing is to say, look, this may not be the best use of it. And there may be more effective things we can
1: do. Let me ask you about the practicalities of your proposals, Dan, because there does seem to be Very strong agreement between you and David that trade, certainly for most people anyway, is going to be what gives them that real economic boost. But at the moment, the UK has not dropped all of its tariffs. We do not have unfettered free trade. And with zero indication that we are going to have that anytime soon, doesn't something need to fill in the gap? Is it so wrong to argue for an aid budget? Well, so
0: I'd say a number of things about that, Kate. First of all, uh, watch this space. I mean, I I think there is a a prospect of real movement on trade, particularly on on some of the unilateral Mm -hmm. uh, removal of barriers that we can do here. Second and related point, that will mainly help us. Yes, there will be some incidental benefit to African agrarian exporters... But the main benefit will be to our consumers because they will find that they can live at a higher living standard while working the same number of hours or they will have more money to to spend on other things and that will drive the whole economy. If we want to have the same happy consequences for some of the poorer countries, fundamentally, it's up to their governments, right? I mean, if we look at, for example biggest population in Africa, a huge, uh, will soon be the biggest population in the world if, if things carry on, Nigeria. Nigeria has a 20% tariff on rice. You know, it, it has tariffs on, on all manner of basic staple food commodities, almost all driven by politically connected interests there, and almost all doing huge damage. I mean, imagine how much income you would free up from people on average incomes there if they didn't have all these tariffs to, to contend with. In the end... That is only something that the Nigerian government can change. Now, the UK should be using its voice to push for global liberalisation. And one of the things we need to be very careful of when we use our aid budget is that we shield bad governments from the consequences of their own hopelessness and keep them in place even as they inflict this needless poverty on their population. That was, of
2: course, one of the arguments that that Peter Bauer made was, was that the giving of aid direct to governments... Reinforce their interest in their own e- political interest in the economies and led to the sort of yeah. issue. But to, to, to come back to the aid and trade issue, and one of the good things the British government's done, mostly, I think, under Andrew Mitchell's drive, was to basically say to the aid providers, the aid community, you're quite right, is not particularly favourable to the capitalist model, <laughs> put mm. it mildly. But, you know, there are things called aid for trade. No. Uh, and it, it, it's an important component of, of improving uh, uh, improving trade. I mean, a, a rather simple model, but if you think about the sort of, take Africa, Africa's not the only place, by the way, where the bottom billion are, but Africa's the one that meet most people's minds. When Africa was uh, uh, basically a lot of colon- parts of colonial empires, most of the railway lines were built to the ports to get, I don't know, bauxite or iron ore or whatever, or to be sent back to the home so called home country uh, and so that the actual transport networks were, were not very well adapted for that the, the, you would think you'd have transport networks going from your own country to the need to
0: take eh? open veins of africa this is i just don't think that's true i just don't think that's true
2: but i'll come back in a second but but the point being i'm making here is is that the facilitating local trade is important dan's absolutely right we must not facilitate or support that sort of bad behaviour by local governments, if we believe in open trade, we should be encouraging African countries, Asian countries to do the same. That's one of the best things we can do. But Aid for Trade exists, and it's, and it's there to do things like create ports and create access to markets, which will be, will be having an effect long after the aid budgets have disappeared.
1: I want to end on the politics of the aid budget because during COVID it was cut from 0.7% down to 0.5. It was billed as temporary, though a lot of people are not convinced that number will be going back up. And just recently, we are now hearing debates that up to half of the aid budget could or even should be used to support the refugees and the small boats crisis that the UK is currently experiencing. But more broadly speaking, these are very difficult economic times. And Brits are about to be asked to hand over more of their money to the state. David, how do you make the case for aid when Brits are already going to be under extreme difficulty, experiencing well, extreme difficulty I mean, when it the, the, comes the, the, to their I, budgets?
2: I make it. I can make it in a, in a, firstly, a starkly moral way. I mean, we're not a country of Alf We're a country of generous people. Look at the, look at the response to the Ukraine. Why? Because people could see the problem and they did something about it. So I think if you made the argument properly, then you would get more traction with it. But there's another, uh, you might almost say it's a cynical argument, is this. Africa's a huge continent. It literally is much bigger than you think, looking at the map. And it will be a great power in the land. And we want to maintain our relationships and we want to be part of the people that build it. And even as a simple self-interest for our grandchildren... We want to be there.
1: But what is the view like from the ground? Degan Ali is a humanitarian leader and CEO of a Kenyan-based NGO called Adesso, currently helping to tackle the crisis in the Horn of Africa. With many European countries reconsidering their aid budget, I started by asking her whether she had noticed any impacts of the
4: cuts. That's a really good question, because most local organizations on the ground don't even really get access to much of this funding that comes from UK aid or formerly DFID. So honestly, for local organizations, the level of income or funding that comes in as a result of different decisions bilaterals are making is almost negligible in terms of how it's noticed on the ground by local organizations, because we're continuously resource poor. So I don't think it's been very noticeable, honestly.
1: Mm. I know that you have strong feelings about where the majority of aid money is directed. Can you talk me through why you think that it's so important that more of the aid budgets
4: go to local organizations and smaller organizations? There's many reasons. One is simple value for money. Every time you do layers of intermediation, Efficiency is significantly reduced because every layer of intermediation is taking money off the top to run their operations and to staff their programs and headquarters. So the UN takes a cut, the INGOs who they give money to then takes a cut. That, that's a one major argument if people are really concerned about cost effectiveness. And then the second, I think, is, a, is an ethical argument in terms of is this the right thing to do where... We talk about empowering people and communities and we talk about impact, but the reality is is that the aid funding that has been traditionally given on the ground to communities in the past 60, 70 years or whatever post-colonialism hasn't had that much impact, honestly, because of the layers of intermediations, because these INGOs and UN agencies are not close to the communities, they don't understand the context, they program in a way that's very top-down, And so we are losing huge opportunities for having significant impact because of the way the aid system currently operates. And lastly, I would say that I'm actually a proponent more for direct budget support to governments. What I would like to see is UK aid actually giving most of the resources instead of to the UN agencies, to the governments, even weak governments, because I think even a weaker government has better chances of being implemented. And it's part of also enhancing the social contract between the government and its citizens. If the government is completely incapacitated because all the resources go to the UN and the INGOs, then citizenry doesn't feel a sense of connection. And uh, there's no rights and responsibility. There's no relationship between citizenry and government. So we have to be empowering governments by giving them the resources directly because in the end they're the duty bearers. We are not expecting next time there's a flood or major crisis in the UK for NGOs from Ghana or South Africa or India to come and save British citizens. We're expecting the government of the UK to take care of its citizens. Why isn't that level of expectation and and respect also given to Global South countries? That's a
1: really interesting point. Most of the people that I've spoken to so far reject the idea of giving aid directly to governments because they're concerned about corruption and examples in the past where that money has not filtered through to the people who need it most, that it stayed in, in the top ranks of government and, and arguably the the best off in that society. Can you talk me through a little bit more why perhaps you're less concerned about that or why perhaps even with concerns of corruption, you still think it's the better option?
4: I'm not naive to assume that there's no concerns. I know that there is concerns, but I also have seen that, sorry to say, exorbitant amounts of corruption in the aid system some of it is legitimized as i said the, the cost the astronomical cost and salaries that are paid to un staff members the astronomical costs that are paid for their vehicles and their operational costs i think that's a legitimized form of corruption i don't think that somebody who's working in somalia should be earning 20000 dollars a month but that's somehow accepted because it's a UN staffer. Then there's actually, you know, non-legitimized corruption that occurs by the aid organizations um, that is covered up purposefully, oftentimes by governments. They're the funder governments. They know what's going on on the ground. And then there's just misprogramming when you are programming in things that are not really relevant for the people and the communities that don't have like long lasting impact I'll give you a very good example. We're talking here now about another potential famine in Somalia. 2011 to now, we've had all these years to develop resiliency and to support the farmers and to put people back into the farming communities that were displaced in the last famine. We've had so many opportunities to engage in long-term programming that is impactful, but that's not the desire of the aid system. They continue to fund these misplaced, misdiagnosed and almost like intentionally responsible kind of projects are but just because they're the UN just because they're NGOs that they trust there's heavy emphasis on trust And this trust oftentimes leads to resources going into terrible programs. So we have to only ask ourselves, you know, what impact have we had in that 10 years, 11 years since the last famine, almost negligible to prevent another famine. But the aid system is partially responsible for that. And They haven't built uh, strong government systems, they haven't built a uh, strong civil society to hold the governments accountable, they haven't really built strong community systems so that the community goes back to where they're supposed to go back to and then they start farming and they become more resilient. I'd rather place my bet on supporting governments and doing something different than continuing the status quo.
1: Is there anything that you think Western countries and these big international aid organizations are getting right, perhaps maybe around crisis aid and humanitarian aid when there's a natural disaster or any other
4: area where you think that they actually are on the right track? No, honestly, there is nothing I can say that is, at least my personal experience, there's nothing I can point to that I can say, I'm really proud of the aid system, what they've done in Somalia that I can tangibly point my fingers at. Degan, my last question to you then is, what is your ideal model for
1: foreign aid? Britain at the moment is trying to champion the title of global Britain. It wants to be more outward looking. What advice would you give to the UK when it comes to its international aid and development?
4: I would say that one of the things that has to be done is... If Britain is truly, really wants to take responsibility and onus in having developed this global governance systems, we need to revamp the IMF and the World Bank. And Britain could be the first country to say, I'm not going to have veto power. It's going to be one country, one vote in the UN system. The West constantly pushes down the throat of the global South, poor governance, corruption, and blah, blah, blah. But sometimes the most corrupt systems are are perpetuated by the west when you have only 5 countries that have veto power in a system how is that not totally undemocratic and quite authoritarian. So if Britain wants to be brave and courageous and do things that are aspirational, it could lead in the removing of the veto power system within the UN, then maybe we could finally resolve intractable humanitarian crises that have been ongoing forever, like Syria or Yemen or now Ukraine, so that Ukraine doesn't become another Yemen and take another 10 years or whatever to resolve itself or never get resolved.
1: I'm joined now by Salfikar Bhutta, who is the co-director at the Centre for Global Child Health in Toronto, and has worked closely with governments and foundations on numerous projects. He believes that many of these projects have made huge strides in fighting disease and poverty. I start by asking him about Degan Ali's criticisms of foreign aid.
5: I think if appropriately targeted, particularly for low and middle income countries, this is one lifeline that can help countries enormously overcome some of the funding gaps and the ground realities of what they have with limited resources. I mean, you must recognize uh, that currently we have a confluence of global crises like has never been seen before. We had COVID that was followed by a massive cost of living increase for a variety of reasons. We had conflict, the Ukraine crisis. And then on top of that, climate change. Take Pakistan as an example, my country. Pakistan emerged from COVID-19, certainly had economic crises that were reflective of what happened to the rest of the world. Then with the conflict in Ukraine, the entire food supply chain got disrupted. And then on top of that, we had the climate change crisis with unprecedented floods that affected a third of the population. Now, we estimate that the damage to the infrastructure and to many of those districts might cost us close to around $40 billion over time in uh, damage. Now, there is just no way in a country that's been trying very hard over the last year or two to principally repay some of its loans and as seeking IMF assistance, that Pakistan could do it alone without assistance. So the role of foreign aid, both for emergency circumstances and also for supporting and encouraging countries to invest in areas where they can improve their human development and capital, I think is critical. But it needs to be monitored. It needs to be targeted. It needs to be spent smartly and efficiently.
1: I know you've worked closely with UK Aid and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation on a number of projects. Can you talk me through what you think the mechanics are that make up a successful project versus the mechanics that lead to a failed project?
5: That's fantastic question and it's a very important question of course because more often than not development agencies and particularly bilaterals will come into the countries with their own agenda with their own perception of what needs to be done but in in the case of uk aid at least my own experience in pakistan has been very positive i'll give you two very specific examples when the time came for us to review our national nutrition situation particularly the status of undernutrition for women and children. It wasn't that UK aid or or local offices came to us with, with that question. They were open to our own suggestions in terms of assistance being targeted towards appropriate data collection, appropriate information gathering, modeling, making the case for strategies and interventions. And I thought that that was a remarkable example of partnership, and also joint planning in terms of how that assistance could be used. So the National Nutrition Survey that was done in Pakistan in 2018, just before the pandemic, is the largest survey of that nature in any developing country. And it was not only important in terms of highlighting some of the drivers and determinants of undernutrition, but also underscoring the solutions that we needed to put in place. And notwithstanding COVID, for four years on, That survey, which could not have been done without UK AIDS assistance, uh, was designed by national academic and thought leaders in partnership with UKID staff, but was also instrumental in terms of leading to the planning of the nutrition intervention indigenously. Mm.
1: We had Roy Stewart on this podcast earlier. He was arguing that aid money is best spent as an unconditional cash transfer rather than within a project. And Deg and Ali uh, also took issue with a perceived lack of respect that is afforded to local government, sometimes even government at the top level. What is the case then for uh, these projects that are coming through formalized organizations that are often placed outside of the country that is in most need of help? What is it that they're adding when there are other options like direct cash transfers or, frankly, giving money to government?
5: I think one of the downsides of direct cash transfers is is lack of accountability and also the the likelihood that money would not go to where it needs to go. And that's been the case in many countries over the years where Development assistance dollars have found their way into Swiss accounts elsewhere. So I think we probably need a mixture of both. So we need principally fiscal support to governments in terms of their own budgetary support. But I think I would argue very strongly that having that money come with some conditionalities on ensuring that it addresses the priorities that are there in the country and recognized in the country. is very important. Improving the status of women, improving the status of adolescents, improving education, improving and investing infrastructure, water, sanitation, hygiene. So I would take an issue with just giving cash or, or um, unspecified resources to low and middle income countries. I think the evidence around is that if you work and ensure that you monitor, evaluate and work with in-country partners, that, that money would be reasonably spent.
1: Sophie, my last question to you is about these developed countries that are having to question or reconsider their aid packages and what they're offering up in light of looming recession and the difficulties that they're experiencing as well coming out of the COVID pandemic. Some would argue that the loss of money flowing to international aid is no real loss at all, that this money was not well used in the first place, and it's not going to have a great impact if it's not there. What would you say to these governments that are reconsidering their
4: budgets?
5: Well, I mean, this always happens when there is belt tightening and you have a domestic market. But, you know, the world is not an equal place. And without recognizing that we sink or swim together, climate change has told everybody that there is nothing like a world out there where people are affected by something like this and in, in uh, Europe and North America where people are unaffected. Everybody's affected by this. If poor countries become poorer, if they have crises, famines, disasters, conflict and huge population movement, the first thing that we get affected is the security of the developed world. If you really want the world, the entire ship to lift up, you've got to ensure that the entire world goes up the development ladder, and which is what happened during the Millennium Development Goal period. We saw unprecedented progress. We saw a reduction in poverty at a scale that we had never seen before. We saw billions lifted out of poverty. And it was only possible to do that, both in terms of economic gains and in terms of reduction in child mortality because the world got together around an objective. The Millennium Development Goal 4 and 5 for reducing child and maternal mortality was critical in terms of reaching some of those targets for countries. I can argue and say that had development assistance not being in place, the world would not have reached that target. Now, we ended up now with a situation that many countries were lifted from low income settings to low and middle income characterization. And and that was possible through that partnership. Now, finally, I think even though there is belt tightening everywhere in the world, it is fundamental important in a globalized world, that we also look at how we are able to assist others who need assistance today. And while there can be belt tightening and some reduction in development assistance, this is what I meant by smart programming. This is what I meant by ensuring that whatever assistance goes to countries is spent properly. Now, I can also argue that this is also a time for all of these so-called IMF um, uh, conditionalities and structural adjustments to also focus on protecting the health, well-being, education, and other development programs that otherwise would be cut because every country will then try and meet its bottom line. And lastly, I think this is also time for globally everywhere for people to reduce their defense expenditure which I typically call offence expenditure in many low- and middle-income countries because it's, it's, it's expenditure at the cost of human development.
1: The UK has always prided itself in being a world leader when it comes to international development, but it's clear that there's a debate to be had about what this looks like in the future. Now more than ever, the UK needs to shape its place in the world, with the war in Ukraine and the cost of living crisis having thrown many things into sharp relief this could be the perfect opportunity to reconsider how the UK delivers international development and make sure that it's providing targeted relief to those who are in the most need. Thanks to all my guests Rory Stewart, David Davis, Dan Hannon, Degan Alley and Dr. Buddha. I'm Kate Andrews and thanks again to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for kindly sponsoring this episode.